How's that? There we go. All right, if you're a visitor, we're glad you're here. We're, we're very glad if you're looking for a church, uh, you'll get to know us as a, as a Bible-preaching, evangelistic, warm and welcoming, God-honoring church. That's the people you're among. If you're a, if you're a non-Christian, you've been brought by somebody, where we're extremely glad that you're here because Jesus loves to save sinners. Sinners, if you're a sinner, then you're precisely the sort of person that Jesus delights in bringing to God in forgiveness. We're glad that you're here. And in Romans chapter 8, maybe you're unfamiliar with it, maybe you're new to the Bible or whatever. Romans 8 is one of those chapters that's that's a peak chapter. It's often called the the Himalayas or the, the Mount Everest of the New Testament because In it, we are given some of the most glorious, uh, expansive, uh, beautiful visions of God's grace for us in Christ. And we've been saying throughout it that it has both the the, the fundamentals, the the basics, as well as the the, the expansive, uh, incomprehensible glories for the Christian life all contained in this chapter. It's it's got simple things like, uh, how do I relate to God now? How how do I pray? How should I think of myself? How do I live? It's got all of that in there. But it's also got these, these glorious, expansive ideas of our salvation having begun before we were were even born, before time began, the, the eternal, sovereign, triune God doing all of these glorious, majestic, atoning, saving works to bring us to himself. And, and so this has been a, a powerful and glorious and beautiful chapter, and we're at this, this sort of crux of the chapter, this, this all-important verse, which in some sense returns back to the very first verse of the chapter. Let me read for you the first verse of the chapter, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let me hear it. Amen. That is a good word. That is a good promise. That is good news. That for those who have placed their faith in Jesus, therefore you are in him. You are a part of him. He, he, wherever he goes, you go. Whatever he has, you have. Whatever God thinks of or says of his son Jesus, he says and thinks of you because you're now united to him, unified to him, in union with him. Therefore, since there's no condemnation in Jesus, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Sinners are forgiven and counted righteous when you believe in Jesus Christ. Then, then he went on to, to sort of expand from that. And now that he's cracked open that glorious gospel oyster, then he, then he starts uh, looking, at the, looking at the beautiful pearl. And we saw that that means you're not in the flesh anymore. You're a spirit person. That means that you're not under sin anymore. You actually have the spirit of God in you. That means that you're no longer slave to evil, rather you have the power to overpower sin. It means also that all of the sufferings happening to you, like an oyster, is just turning you into this beautiful pearl of Christ-likeness. It's, it's redounding to your glory in the end of time. That, that whatever happens to you, the Spirit is with you, helping you persevere, because whoever God chose, He will make sure get to glory. And, and last week in verse 31 and 32, the, the controlling question was this, what shall we say to all of these glorious things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He started out with the idea of, I'm righteous in Jesus, no condemnation. And tonight in verse 33 and 34, listen to the verse, he returns to the same, the same point or the same topic, but makes a different point. The same theme of being righteous in Christ, 
but he's driving home just a slightly different point, and we'll get there in a moment. But hear now the words of our text this evening, verse 33 and 34. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. May God bless this word to us tonight. Last week, the, the argument was, when God sets to do something, forget about opposition. There is no comparable power in the universe that if God decides to do something, anybody else will ever matter. Nothing can stop God when he sets his mind and his power to do something. Just as Job chapter 9 says, who can turn him back? When God sets his mind on something, who can turn him back? Who can ever say to him, what are you doing? There's no power in the universe that can be called to arms to stand in the way of God when he is setting about doing something. Therefore, since Romans 8 has been saying that God is for us, we are his people, he is for us, he is aiming at saving us and getting us to heaven and he will not fail. Since that is the case, if God is for us, who can bring any power against God's elect? It is God who is for us. There's no power that can stand in the way. And now the same kind of argument, but no longer the question of power. Now the question is, what about legal authority? What about the, the legal accusation and the, and the causes and the cases and the, the accusations that can be brought against Christians? Now the question is, not simply if God is for us, what power can stand against us? Who can bring any power against God's elect? Now the question is, who can bring any charge against God's elect? And this is deeper. Because if you can show to God, if you can prove that justice demands that you, an elect of God, still stand guilty before his law, then all of God's power, which was for you, will in fact be turned against you because he's righteous and holy. Therefore, this is the deeper question. You might hear people say, God can save, God, God could save, God, God is powerful to save, and he's loving to save. But, but the deeper burning question for the Christian, this is what Romans 3 answers. This is what Charles Spurgeon said was one of his, his, his mightiest arguments in his own conscience about being able to believe the gospel, is that it makes God unrighteous. He says, I know he could, I know he can, he can do what he wants, but if he forgave me, justice would be outstanding and undone, and, and I can't have that. And he came to understand that in the gospel, God justly justifies us. He forgives our sin not by sweeping it under the rug, but by imputing it to Jesus and punishing him in our place. But this is, this is the all-important question, that if, if you can convince God that an elect person of his stands guilty, then he must punish us. So this becomes a very important question. Who can? Is there anyone who may bring such a charge against us and thus turn all of God's omnipotent power against us so that we will be judged and guilty before him? Who can bring any charge against God's elect? And the argument here is about legal authority. The word charge here is, is, a, is a legal accusation. Evidence, uh, a con, uh, uh, accusation or, or, or a charge that might be brought to somebody in court. 
that somebody might stand up and make an argument and show by the evidence and use by the proofs that this person who stands in the dock is a guilty offender. And what that results in is condemnation. Once the judge is convinced that you have a valid charge against your account, he will bring down the gavel and say, you are guilty, and then a sentence of condemnation and punishment will be brought. Therefore, it is an all-important question. Who is able to bring such a charge against the people that God has decided to save? And by charge, we mean, of course, something that would be a valid charge in God's courtroom would be sins and evils. So, so maybe you think the question is this. Which one of God's elect have any sins still in their life? No, none. We're fine. You'll be right. At which point you should shake in your boots and fear for your life, your eternal soul, because that's not the case for you and it's not for me. It's not the case that God says, uh, sorry, that, that Paul says, we'll be fine. None of us are sinning, are we? We've all been, per- I mean, we were, we were pretty rotten before Jesus, but he met you, he saved you, gave you a new heart, gave you his spirit. You've been praying daily, obeying the law, perfectly loving and righteous. Correct? That's not his argument. His argument is not that there's no guilt in us. His argument rather goes deeper, is that the highest authority in the land has already procured judgment, finished the verdict, and handed down the sentence and said that we are not guilty, but righteous. So so who could bring a charge against God's elect? We could say, well, my neighbors, my spouse, my brother, my sister, my friends, the people I go to church with, my own conscience, uh, uh, the devil. Doesn't the devil's name come from, from the accuser, the slandering one who comes into God's presence and loves to list the sins of of, of the people? Yeah, yeah. Any of those people could list a charge. The question, though, is, To whom would God ever listen and allow and accept a charge from? To that, Paul's answer is no one. It is God who does the justifying work. You see, accusations are only ever relevant if the court is still in session. Accusations of coming up and saying, he's guilty, here's what he did, here's another witness, here's another piece of evidence that is only ever valid if the court stands in session and the gavel of the, of the judge has not yet struck the, struck the plate. Once the verdict is handed down, it doesn't matter what you say or who says what or how many mobs form to remind you of what you've done or try and bring an accusation. Once the verdict is given, Charges are irrelevant. Charges are not accepted. So they, they become actually just illegal slander. So, 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 so what, what he's saying here is, it's in the past tense. Romans 8 verse 33, he says, Who can bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. He's already done it. The verdict now is in the past. That means that the people may come up and tell you as you walk through the street with a righteous verdict already proclaimed over you, as God has said, I've counted you righteous, sin forgiven, nothing outstanding, righteous elect of God, and other people might surround you and say, hey, you did this, we remember this, here's our accusations, your neighbor, your conscience, the devil, all surround you in the street, and they will, and that's part of life, we have to deal with the accusing nature of, of our own flesh and the people around us and the devil, and yet we can say, as far as the court is concerned, As far as justice goes, 
you're the ones acting out of accord with the law. I'm the one in accord with the law. A verdict has already been handed down. Accusations were heard. Charges were made. And then they were discharged and disqualified. I was already proclaimed righteous. And, he says, here's the real guts of the matter. Not only has justice already occurred, not only has justification already been handed down, but it has been handed down by the highest authority that is imaginable. Maybe you stand up and say, that's, that's actually not how justice works, Pastor Paul. Don't you realize that, that if uh, somebody is acquitted of, of, of guilt and you know, they're, they're released, but fresh evidence comes up that would bring that previous ju- uh, 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 verdict into question or another outstanding charge that was not dealt with, if that is brought up, it can, it can reopen court. In fact, also, uh, you could make an, an appeal. We know what an appeal is. You, you, you get called, the, 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 the offender is called not guilty, the court is closed, and, and then you have the right to say, no, I believe they're guilty, and they go to a higher court of appeals and say, now the higher authority. You know, you have the, the local and then the state and then the, then the high court of Australia. In America, it's Supreme Court. And you can go all the way up the rungs to go to the higher. Now, maybe you say, well, 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 that's not the case, that once a verdict is handed down, that it's closed. It's only closed until an appeal is made. And, and Paul simply commands us to rest easy on that front. Who will you go to to find a higher authority that has the power to overrule God's verdict? This is Romans 8, verse 33. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who may condemn Who out there has the goal, has the authority to to be able to to see on the papers that it was Yahweh himself that handed down a judgment and say, oh, no no matter, I'll reopen this case. I have overruling powers over God. None. It, It was not Michael the archangel who oversaw your case and brought you into justice before God. It was not Moses, the great giver of the law. It was not Elijah, the great prophet. It was not, it was not, not Paul. The, the, the lawyer, the theologian, the apostle, it was not him that brought your case into heaven and made sure that the books were squared to make you righteous. It was God himself, God personally, the king, the king, the supreme judge and king, personally oversaw your case, brought it into court, signed his name, printed his blood, gave his seal, you are righteous by the decree of the highest authority in the land. It is God who justifies. Therefore, there is none who can condemn. He has already justified us. It's in the past. He has done it legally and righteously through his son. And he, as the highest voice, has made the decree. Look at verse 34. This argument he makes is that it is the overwhelming power of Christ's death which justifies us. <coughs> Verse 34. Who is it? Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. So, so what charge could be laid against somebody's account? We could say, there is another exception. 
If somebody's been declared righteous and is walking out her merry way on the street, very happy that she escaped condemnation, she could be hauled back into court and made to sit uh, as a defendant yet again if something else occurs that overrules or we could say overpowers maybe some fresh evidence or, or another act of guilt on her behalf that overpowers the previous uh, uh, agreement that was come to. She might be hauled back in and say, oh, Judge, I, uh, you, you allowed my time served to be enough. Remember, I was in, I was in jail for 30 days awaiting our court, court hearing, and instead of giving me a month in prison, you let me go free for time served. That's, that's, how, that's the agreement. And he might say, yes, but this evidence which has come up is, is far greater than that. This is a murder. This is, this is such a vile conduct that you've been, been proven to have done that it cannot simply be outweighed by a month behind bars. Or, or it might be that she said, you know, you, you said that we could downgrade it to a misdemeanor, I could get off with a large and hefty fine, but that I wouldn't have to see jail time. And he would say again, yes, I know the agreement we came to, but that was, that was on, the, on the basis of, of a much smaller charge. This charge weighs heavy. This charge is quite great, and therefore I call you in for another hearing and more guilty accusing. Well, here is the fact. What Paul is saying is that as you are living as a Christian, you place your faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you know the day, the month. Maybe you could pinpoint a year at best. Some of you know the, the moments you placed your faith in Jesus. But at some point in the past, and for some of you it's future, and I pray it's tonight. But for some of you, you we know we, we placed our faith in Jesus. And at some point we started to understand the gospel more and more. And we're in a church and started to learn the Bible a bit more. And, and eventually you started sort of walking in, in wisdom and sin sort of being more easily avoided. And your, your company got better and better. And, but there has either been a long trail of sins or... You have a tragic moment in your life when you commit something truly heinous, large, maybe even public and, 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 and vile. And you've done that now as a Christian. Here's the question. Does that sin, however vile, have any merit whatsoever to be able to haul you back into the status of condemned? Or at least not justified? still under the guilty command. Does that sin have any power to, to reverse God's verdict? Does it have any power to, to sort of remove the justification that was over you according to the agreement between you and the judge? And the answer is only if it, ha it overpowers the payment made. Only if the demerit of the sin outweighs the merit of the payment. Therefore, the argument that Paul makes, or the next phrase that he says, is proven to be an unimaginably glorious answer. Who is to condemn? Who could condemn us on the basis of sins now committed after your salvation? Who could do that? His answer, Christ Jesus is the one who died. There's no sin that's ever been committed or will be committed, that will ever have the power to overrule the, the atoning work and power that was brought about in Jesus' death for you. It wasn't a righteous neighbor. It wasn't a good friend. It wasn't a, a holy person or a saintly brother. It was the Christ, the anointed, undefiled God-man, God, Jehovah, in flesh, 
perfect. It was him who died. No mere angel, no saint or brother. Jesus, the Christ. God has died and therefore we realize God is more satisfied in the death of Jesus than dissatisfied with any of my sin, no matter how evil it be. Get that and tattoo it into your amygdala and your eyeballs. Get it deep within you. God is more satisfied with the death of Jesus than he is dissatisfied with any and every one of your sins. In fact, if you were a sinner thousands of times worse than you are, there would still be, in Jesus' death, satisfaction before God that far outweighs and remains far sufficient for your sins. Jesus could have, in the merits of his blood, there there could still be value, power, saving work that could atone for as many worlds of sinners as there are sinners in the world, Thomas Watson used to say. There is no sin that you could ever commit. Don't try, just know. There is no sin that you could ever commit that will ever even raise the question with God, does this overturn the satisfaction that I declared on the basis of Jesus' death? Paul says, that's ridiculous. There's no such thing as an outstanding charge. There's no such thing as a potential condemnation of the elect of God. God justified us. And why? Because Jesus died for us. Jesus died for me becomes the constant refrain and the shield against every kind of guilty conscience and attack against our soul. It is the refrain that we must continually repeat to ourselves. God was satisfied in Jesus' death. Jesus Christ died for me. Jesus died in my place for my sin. Nothing else can stand against that. No sin we ever commit will ever have enough staining potency to outlast the bleaching power of Christ's blood. No sin you ever do will have enough unrighteousness in it to demand that God reopens his courtroom. No list of sins has the criminality to be able to call into question the status that Christ's righteousness earned for you in God's verdict. In other words, God made his verdict on the basis of Christ, fully knowing all of the sins we would ever commit and being 100% certain, which is why Hebrews says, He made a vow on the basis. God made a vow in his own name that there will never be a sin which overpowers, outrules, outlasts the cleansing, efficacy, and power of the blood of Christ. Never. God was so confident as he looked upon, fully satisfied, fully having his just wrath absorbed in Jesus. He, he looked there on Easter Friday. He, he saw Jesus on the cross being crushed, his body being laid into the grave. And as the Father looked, he was certain. He was certain there will never be a sin committed by any one of my people that will ever make me dissatisfied with whoever this represented. And that's you if you trust in Jesus. Never a sin outstanding. Christ has died and rose. That meets every accusation, valid or not. Whether it's true that you did that sin or not, it will meet every 
accusation. This is the one truth to hold fast to your soul. The, the devil meets you. This is what Luther said. He says, the devil meets you and, and he, he starts listing your sins. Just let him go. Let him run his mouth and encourage him along his way as he continues to give him some encouragement so he gets through the long list and at the end, remind him of a few more that he was unaware of and then say, ha, Christ died for me. What of it? This is the confidence that Luther had. He, he would even say, if this is true, go out and sin boldly. You're going to sin anyway. Not an encouragement to engage yourself in every evil that you can. He means, if you're sinning, if you realize you're a sinner, be bold. Stick it in the devil's eye and remind him, of course I'm a sinner. Just the type of thing that Jesus died to save. Of course I'm a sinner. Just the type of person that Jesus procures and rescues. Spurgeon told this, this story. There was an uh, uh, emperor, Ch uh, Charles V, went to war with Francis I, king of France. And he sent his uh, emissary. And their, their two ambassadors met each other in an agreed-upon spot. And, and the, 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 the emperor, Charles V, his emissary stands up and starts speaking to, uh, uh, to this other emissary in the name of the king. And, and he says, you know, I, I speak to you now in the name of the emperor of Germany, the king of Castile, king of Aragon, king of Naples, king of Sicily. And went on with all of these impressive titles and offices that this one emperor currently held. And the, the emissary of the king of France, well, his guy only had one title. So he just stands up and he says, and I speak to you in the name of Charles I, king of France. 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 Charles I, king of... And he simply said the one title the same amount of times as the other guy had listed the titles of the emperor Charles. And here he is, he's, he's standing, he's confident that, that though the list is shorter, he has the one title in office that needs to be remembered. And so Spurgeon says, so it is with the, with the sinner. Oh, the devil might come with all of the lists of everything that stands against you. And the only thing you need to stand up is say, yes, well, Christ died and rose. Christ died and rose. Christ died and rose. Christ died and rose. The Christ died and rose for me. It's the one thing, the one office, the one thing, the one act, the one truth that outlasts all of the rest. No matter how impressive the accusation seems to stand against you. Christ is the one who died. It is... Therefore, with, with gusto, we can sing that old hymn, which was originally a Sunday school child's poem written by uh, Elizabeth Hewitt in the 1800s. The refrain of it being this, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. You, you say that to yourself, Jesus died for me. And then you feel the, the condemnation arise in your soul and go, yeah, but look at ya. Like, that's gospel, that's ABCs, that's, that's step one. So you got into the kingdom, and, but then you sinned against. What now? Well, Christ died for me. And every temptation within you and every, every high pollutant intellectual and academic wants you to come up with something more impressive than that. And there's nothing more impressive than the fact that Christ died for you, you vile, sinful worm justified by his blood. Christ died for me is all we ever need against the accusation of our sin. And then look at the end of verse 34. This comes into its, into its own next week, which we'll be looking at in even more depth. But here it stands. More than that, who was raised, 
who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. That is that Jesus did not just die, but he rose then, sat down next to his father in power on the throne and intercedes for us. This, this gets at what we, we have uh, studied many times in the past. The three offices of Christ's mediation. That Jesus fulfills all of the three main jobs of the Old Testament. The Old Testament, the, the main guys were either the priests, the prophets, or the kings. That the priests prayed to God and made sacrifices. The prophets spoke to the people from God. And the kings ruled and reigned and distributed justice and protection. What we see in Hebrews, in the New Testament, all throughout the Gospels, is that Jesus is the one first ever person to take up every single one of the offices, put them all on, and enact them all in perfect unity and righteousness. So that Jesus makes the better sacrifice for us as priest. He speaks a better word to us as prophet. And he rules us with a kingdom that will never come to an end. But there's another element of his priestly, kingly, prophetic work, which still goes on now. That being in heaven, he is, it, the, the text says, he's been raised up and seated at the right side of God. And you might think, well, what, 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 what part is that? That sounds like a king. He's sitting on the throne. That's, that's usually what the New Testament is getting at when it speaks of him being at the right hand of God. But, but that's not the emphasis here in Romans 8. The emphasis here, yes, he's a king, but he's a, he's a priestly king. What the priests, the high priests would do in the Old Testament, they would, on, the, on Yom Kippur, the great day of atonement, they would, they would make the sacrifice, but then they would go into the holy place in the temple. And there they would pray for the people they represented, Israel. They would pray that the sacrifice be pleasing to God and that he would be merciful on the basis of the atonement made. He goes into the presence of God and prays that the sacrifice be accepted and be made effectual. And that is what Romans 8 here is telling us Jesus is doing. That he didn't just die for you, he rose again because his death was victorious and successful. It paid for you. And then he went into the holy place of God, into heaven. He went right up to God's right hand, not in a human holy place, not in a temple in Israel, but he went to the heavenly holy place. And there he stands and sits on the throne right beside God, and there he pleads for us. What does he plead? What does he pray? What does he intercede? Well, he, like the Old Testament priest, pleads that the sacrifice made would have its full effect. Jesus is in heaven now, praying for you by name, that the atonement made for you, that the blood shed for you, that the body bruised for you, that the death experienced for you, that the righteousness earned for you, that the life deserved by Jesus given to you, would all be acceptable before God and that he would continue to uphold his promise to the Messiah that he will give all those blessings to everybody who comes to him through Jesus. Here's how Hebrews 7 says it. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. You get a new priest every time the old one dies. That's what happens with the Pope. One dies, they all fight about who's rich and perverted enough to get the spot, right? Well, even in the Old Testament, a priest would die, they'd get a new one. He would pray for you, but 
he doesn't know you. The last guy knew you. He knew about your, your issues. He knew what to pray for. Well, this guy doesn't know you as well. Then he dies and you get another one. And, you know, maybe as the time goes on, you, you wonder just how effective and powerful this guy can really be in his prayers for you before God if, if he keeps suffering the, the, the punishment for sin, which is death. Well, anyway, you ask him to pray and so he does. But Jesus continues forever. He has an eternal, indestructible life in heaven. And there he stands, verse 25. Consequently, since he doesn't die, since the one praying for you doesn't die, he is able to save to the utmost degree anybody who draws near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Do you know what Jesus is doing now? He's praying for you. He's praying for the church. He's praying for this church. He's praying for your soul, your fight against temptation, your perseverance in the faith. He's praying. Look back at verse 28, Romans 8, 28. Jesus is praying, we could say, verse 28 of Romans chapter 8, to God the Father. Uh, sorry, uh, uh, verse 29. It's as if Jesus is praying to the Father, those whom you have foreknown and predestined. Those whom you have predestined to be conformed to my image, into verse 30. Those whom have been predestined, you call. And those whom you have called and justified, Father, those whom you have justified, will you please glorify? Will you please honor my sacrifice, my death, my prayers, my mediation, my priesthood, my office? Could you please, Lord God, for your glory, because of my righteousness, answer me when I call, justify and glorify all those who come to you bearing my name. Everyone who knocks on heaven's door and the, the courtroom of God and says, please forgive me, Jesus said I could come. Every one of those people, God, please receive. And do you think the Father ever turns away the prayers of his own dear son? That's folly. That means that you, friend, as an unbeliever, you know not much about the Bible. You might have no clue about how to live a righteous life. You may not even like the way that it sounds. But if you, tonight understand your own guilt and come knocking on heaven's door and simply say to the Father, though my sins are many, I hear there's a guy who can deal with that. Though I've sinned in loads of ways and I'm not even sure what they all are or how to describe them, but I see you're displeased and that I deserve punishment. Jesus says he can deal with my case. He says, I can come in. If you merely do that and throw your case in with Jesus, God will receive you. He will throw out all of the accusations because he laid them to Jesus Christ's account. He will justify you, receive you, and then allow nothing to stand against you. That is the promise of the gospel, that none can bring, can bring a charge against you, none can be against you, none can condemn you because God has justified and Jesus is the one who died. That means, Christian, that whenever you feel guilty, you are living a non-fiction. No, a fiction. Long day. Whenever you feel guilty, you're experiencing a fiction. There's no such thing as a guilty Christian. The Spirit may come and and show you, illuminate to you that you're sinning, 
and you'll feel convicted, good. The Spirit will come in and, and prove to you that you're living in contradiction to your nature. The Holy Spirit will, and your conscience will make you aware that you're living out of step with your calling, but you are never, ever guilty because you're in Jesus. And this is one of the ways the devil grants his greatest wins, is that, is that because you understand you are sinning, you think, therefore, you are guilty of sin. Guilty means, means liable to judgment. Friend, you're never that. Now, non-Christian, any sense of ever being innocent before God is a total fiction. You've never been righteous. You've never been innocent. You've never been good. Any sense of security that you are innocent before God is a total fiction. It's a lie. But for the Christian, if you're in Jesus, there is no such thing as you being guilty. Let us say this then, that the Father, our God, never wants you to wallow in guilt. He wants you to know your sin. He wants you to know when you're living out of step. He wants you to understand what righteousness is and what evil is and what to avoid and where you need to repent. But he never wants you to do time in the naughty corner. He never wants you to wallow in guilt a little bit. Like it's not a sign of holiness to, to, to be questioning whether you're going to heaven and to be navel-gazing, as J.I. Uh, uh, Packer used to say, and be so wallowed up and caught up with your own guilt. That's, that's immaturity. That's not maturity. God never wants you to wallow in guilt. He wants you to praise the name of God. Otherwise, he would never have written Romans 8. He just could have skipped this chapter. If he didn't want us to be so confident, so bold, so bombastic, so, 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 so swaggerous, so, so, so bold on these promises. If he didn't want that, he wouldn't have written it, but he wrote it. There's nothing that ever stands against your charge. Nothing that ever stands against your account. Never wallow in your guilt. Flee back to the cross. Remember you are not guilty and praise God. From whence this fear and unbelief starts a great hymn. I love that line. From whence this fear and unbelief? Old speak for, where's this fear and unbelief coming from? But Paul's right, thinking as he's writing verse 33 and 34. Christian, where is this fear and unbelief coming from? Who's your father? Who saved you? Who do you think justified you? Who died for you? Where is this coming from? From whence this fear and unbelief? Has not the father put to grief his spotless son for me? And will the righteous judge of men condemn me for that debt of sin which, Lord, was charged on thee? Complete atonement thou hast made, and to the utmost limit paid all that thy people owed. Nor will God's wrath my soul distress if sheltered in thy righteousness and covered in thy blood. If Christ my discharge has procured, and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine. God will not payment twice demand, first at my dying Saviour's hand, and then again at mine. Twice payment God will not demand, first at my dying Saviour's hand, and then again at mine. Turn then, my soul, to joy and rest. The merits of my great high priest have bought my liberty. Trust in his all-sufficient blood, ending my banishment from God, for Jesus died for me. It is God who justifies. 
It is God who justifies. There's this old story in, in a, a, a Jonathan, Jonathan Goforth story. He was a missionary in Manchuria, northeast China, and he tells this story during one of the revivals. There was a, a Chinese bare-knuckled boxer, and he was a national champion. No one could beat him. He was a, he was a burly dude, and, and he had been saved. And his enemies, who had never been able to get one on him, never been able to beat him, heard that he was a Christian, that he wouldn't retaliate, and found him and beat him to a pulp in the marketplace. And when he came to, the the local Christians wanted him to press charges. This was unrighteous. The Boxer Rebellion had just tolerated so many uh, non-Christian Chinese nationalists assaulting Christians. Justice needs to be done here. And so they, they, they pressed him. Who was it? Bring a charge. You're the only one who saw who it was. You're the only one who knows who did it. Press a charge. And he stood up and said, I don't want to press any charges. I I forgive them. I'm fine. I'm walking. God was gracious. And, And here's a picture of the gospel. That God is the offended party with sin. He is the only one who knows all of our sins and all of the people and what has been done against him. He's the one who could condemn. He's the one who the devil, the law, all beseech and say, come on, condemn them. And he says, I won't. I won't. I'm the only one who could, but I won't because I did. I've already condemned them in Jesus. If the one one offended party will not press charges, then there will be no fine to pay. And this is the case for the Christian. Hear what Octavius Winslow said. Christian, embrace this truth. Oh, embrace it. You you who in bitterness of soul are self-accused and self-condemned, who before God Satan accuses... And, and the world could accuse you. And the saints around you could accuse you. But more severe and more true than all is the self-accusation which lays your mouth in the dust in the lowest and deepest contrition. Yet, as a poor sinner, looking to Jesus, resting in Jesus, accepted in Jesus, who shall lay anything legally to your charge since it is God, the God against whom you have sinned, who himself becomes your justifier. Press in humble faith this precious truth to your heart. For God has forgiven all and has cancelled all and has forgotten all and is your God forever and ever. I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. Enough for me that Jesus saves. This ends my fear and doubt. A sinful soul, I come to him. He'll never cast me out. Friend, is that your assurance? Is that your confidence? Are you still guilty in your sin? There's only one thing to do. Come to Jesus. He will never cast you out. Let's pray. Jesus, we are vile, filthy, sinful, guilty, disgusting, unclean worms without you. We break God's law. We delight in evil. We follow after the ways and the wiles and the designs and the schemes of the devil. We sin against you. We are dishonoring to you. We care not that you remain unglorified by our life. We, we, we live indifferent to the fact that you're an enemy of our souls. We, we don't care. We blaspheme. We sin. We're evil without you. Father God, we thank you that in all of your mercy and grace, just at the right time, while we were still weak, Christ died for us. You gave your one and your only son 
that the world might not be condemned, that all who believe might not perish, but have life that never ends. We thank you, God, that in your mercy you have reached down and you have showed your love in this, that you gave Jesus to be the wrath-bearing atonement for our sins. We thank you that your love is eternal and unending and that you have called those whom you have chosen and that you will never, ever let us go. I pray that you secure us, Lord God. Rebuke our doubt and unbelief. Rebuke our fear and in their place put joy and peace. Father God, please, would you be so gracious as to find those people tonight who are still far off, who are still in their guilt, who are still enemies, in their sin and under their evil. Would you please bring them near and drive them to, to, to flee from their sin, to go to your doors, to knock and to ask that in Jesus' name they would be forgiven. Please, Lord God, give them a new heart. Give them salvation. Secure us all and seal us unto the day of redemption and enable us in light of this glorious gospel, to be able to bring exaltation and honor to your name. Father God, we pray this in the name of our victorious Savior, the Christ who died for us, the name, the glorious name of Jesus. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. This sermon was preached at Hope Reformed Baptist Church in Logan, Australia. For more information about our church, visit our website at hoperb.church. If you have been blessed, please leave us a review wherever you listen. We pray this message has been used by God to grow and encourage you in your Christian walk. Thank you for listening. Soli Deo Gloria.